You wonder where we'll be in today. All right. Picking up right where we left off the last time. Revelation chapter 3. What's that? I guess we'll find out. Okay. We are starting a new chapter this evening and a new address to a different church as well. This is the fifth church addressed. And the, and remember, the reason that there are seven churches mentioned here is for a specific purpose. There's obviously more churches existing in the world at this time, uh, but there's seven addresses to seven churches that John is writing to from this island where he's exiled at called Patmos. And the reason he's doing that is because the number seven has significant meaning in the in apocalyptic literature. It's meant to point us to completeness and to fullness and to, to totality. And so the general principles that we see being spoken of to these seven individual churches have meaning and application and, and implementation for our, our – they have things that are implied for churches in every age, uh, in every – this age in which we now live, in which Christ Jesus is reigning over all of the earth as the incarnated God, as the, the Messiah, the promised Messiah. And so I'll say up front also that we're only going to be dealing with the first half of verse 1 this evening. That's because there's something here for us to understand in light of the rest of the things that will be said to this congregation, to this church in Sardis. Things which are serious, things which demand sober-mindedness on our part. Uh, that demand right theological grasping and undergirding on our part by grace because the nickname that this church or this congregation would have would be the dead church. Not, not a good nickname, right? Not a good nickname for a church to have, especially not for a church of the one true living God. So let's read the passage and then we'll pray asking God's blessing. So the reading of God's word beginning at verse 1 in chapter 3 says, into the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray, ask that he would bless our time as we go get into this. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the preservation of your word for us. We know that your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, and it will it informs us on your glory. And we want to rightly understand your glory that we may ascribe to you the glory that is due unto your name, that we may receive the worship that, that you alone are to receive. And we pray that you would help us to depend upon your spirit in this endeavor, Lord, knowing that we do not have the sufficient capacity in ourselves to do those things, nor would we even have the desires to do them if it was not for the work of your Spirit in our lives. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to have understanding and that you would cause us to be sanctified and that you would edify us and convict us where we where we need all those things. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so those, what is it, six verses are the address to the church in Sardis, a church 
a congregation known by Jesus for being dead or for being dying. Now, that's obviously a significant charge, a charge that I think could actually be made for a number of churches that are in existence today even, a church that is not secure in the grace of Christ, fully resting in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, churches that are not fully satisfied in the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ, churches that are not under grace but are, are in fact under the law as their master, living in a performance and reward-based mindset. And not just the ones that are obvious to us, mind you as well, uh, the kind where the nominal, uh, the Christian in name only crowd go to with the shallow messages, with the, with the sermons that are more like the things that the world cares about and values and what God cares about and values, where the man-centered, feel-good doctrine is championed, those moralistic, therapeutic, deism crowds. This warning is for them, certainly, but I think also has application to congregations who on paper are confessional, who are Catholic, not Roman Catholic, but one, by, by that what I mean, one who is in step with the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, one who embraces the Reformed confessions even, one that is concerned with what we might call orthodoxy, with right worship and sound doctrine, a Reformed Catholic even. But those things and the specific exhortations of what to do in light of the criticism from the Lord, we're going to save for next week. Because tonight I want us to think of what is prudent for us to understand what is being communicated in the first half of this introduction in verse 1. Knowing better what is communicated in this first half will help us to really see the need for the Lord in a situation like this, which again is a situation for many churches in our culture today as well too. And so verse 1 begins by pointing out that this is a letter to the angel of the church of Sardis, to the angel. Remember, not an actual angelic being, but to the pastors and the elders of the church. We went over that back in um, back when we first started this series out. Uh, to the spirit-filled proclaimers and defenders of the word in Sardis, to those messengers of the word. But the truths expressed here are also for the church in every age. And these These aren't just history or ge geography lessons that we're getting here in Revelation uh, 2 through 3, we should understand them spiritually as well as Joel Biggie says. Likes to point out. Is that it, Steve, or no? So, nevertheless, because... Oh, okay. Nevertheless, uh, because these addresses are to seven actual congregations as well, the history and geography associated with the congregation still matter. You see, um, these spiritual matters were providentially on display in Sardis through their history and geography. Same thing for the other churches. That's why we've always kind of tried to say a little bit about their history and the geography, their makeup of the land where they were at. That's why I've been giving those backgrounds. Now, Sardis, they believe they were a protected and untouchable city in many respects. I mean, how wrong are they, of course, based off of the Lord Jesus' word to them here. But they had built the city on top of a massive hill with three unscalable sides. It was, I should say, nearly um, inaccessible. Uh, William Hendricks called it Sardis the Impregnable. At one time, it was the capital of Lydia, known as the Queen of Asia, and it was located about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. So it's going in that circle, that circular travel that the letter was to go in. And the geography of this place led to a false confidence in the people of Sardis. Its people were, were arrogant, and they were overconfident, and you can see how those sorts of attitudes within a church context would lead to trouble, I think. Well, they, they weren't totally unassailable. 
uh, Cyrus and Antiochus both had victories over the city hundreds of years before John's time even, and both defeats could be attributed to their lack of vigilance. There was an earthquake in 17 AD that did damage to this Acropolis that was like supporting this, this city and, and as a place of defense. But by the time of John's day, the city had begun to prosper again and was rebuilt with the assistance of the emperor. And so the same spirit of that inhabited the people of Sardis, generally speaking, also became characteristic of the church. And we see what the Lord's assessment of them here was. They had a reputation for being alive, but he says that they were dead. And there was some, there's some aspect of them that they could do something to help um, to stop them from continuing to die. But we'll, again, we'll save that for next week. But I want us to just understand, I mean, first off and plainly, that Christ's churches, of course, should not merely have the reputation of being alive. But they are actually to be alive. And by grace and the work of the Word and the Spirit, they are that. And that, that brings us to the importance of the identifying marks that of Christ Jesus mentions here. So I want us to be thinking, the things that I want us to be thinking of this evening. So just like with the previous four addresses, these are both callbacks to the image of the glorious Christ that we were presented with in chapter 1. So if you have your Bible open, look to chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, chapter 1, which is the last verse in chapter 1, says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So again, remember, we talked about the, the importance of seven in apocalyptic literature, speaking completeness, fullness, totality. And then we also see, of course, here, that the mention of the seven stars and in this, we're told to not actually read things literally at this point, because John tells us that these things are figurative. He records the method of allegory here from the Lord, and we see that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And if you remember, like we went over this in part eight of our series to the Apocalypse of Jesus, how I mentioned earlier that, the, that these angels is another word for messenger, and a messenger of the church most likely the most clear understanding of it would be the pastors, the elders of the churches. They're the ones who are, who are supposed to be preaching. They have this responsibility from the Lord. And so these addresses are given to them to disseminate into the congregation as well too, so that a change that the Lord desires would come about. So this is the words of him, of, of Jesus. No need to go over that again if you're thinking back into chapter 3. Of him who has the seven stars the spirit-filled pastors of the churches. But why would Jesus be reminding that of us at this time? Why bring this up now for Sardis? Well, it has to do with the criticism that he gave them. And it's part of the solution to that criticism. Now, there are lots of things that pastors and elders do for a congregation. There are many things that they end up having to do, which maybe they shouldn't do because other people aren't doing what God would want them to do. But that's a whole other matter. But out of all the things that a pastor or an elder is supposed to do, to do, what would you say is the main responsibility of his office? Uh, there's lots of things to do, but what is the primary thing that a pastor and elder should be doing within the church? Preaching the word. Yeah, I asked hypothetically, but I'll just say anyways. This preaching the word, to teach it, to apply it, to use it to encourage, convict, rebuke, instruct. Consider what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, who, properly speaking, so go open up to Second Timothy, who, Timothy, properly speaking, is an evangelist. He's a, he's a delegate 
of the Apostle Paul, who was charged with preaching and helping congregations appoint elders and deacons and to model what those biblical offices should do. And so look at what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2. He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. But the preaching of the word, which has an element of teaching to it, also is the means of encouraging and correcting that is given to the saints. If we're to keep reading Second Timothy, we see that this very act of preaching is what will keep the true church free from being led away from false teachers, ultimately. Or the, the grace that is supplied to the church in it will mark those who are, who are false and will preserve those who are not. Or flip over to Acts chapter 6. So, fifth book in the New Testament. You're close when you see Romans. This is about the apostles here. And of course, there's overlap in the work of an apostle and with the work of an elder and a pastor, similar to how there is with an evangelist. An evangelist is supposed to preach. A pastor and elder is supposed to preach. An apostle, same types of thing would happen there. But chapter six is that passage in which the office of the deacon for the new covenant community is established. And so we have seven people that are chosen to tend to the Lord's table on the Lord's day uh, when they meet and also to care for the physical needs of the church. But look at what the apostles say they must do. This is verse four. It says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. See the apostles who share a similar responsibility here, who modeled this responsibility for pastors and elders, they were to devote themselves to the ministry of the word, to the preaching and the teaching of the word, so that God's desired effect would come from that. Now, the apostles, along with the the prophets, ending with Jesus himself, who is the prophet, who is also God in the flesh, who would be integral uh, these these groups the apostles and the prophets would be integral in communicating the faith and setting down the doctrines given from god but it's the pastor's duty also to be devoted to the ministry of preaching the word and to teach those things set forth from the foundation of the apostles and the prophets christ jesus is the cornerstone of that foundation that is built um that the found that the foundation of the apostles and prophets is built on you see because if there's a church that is dead or that is dying, and again, we'll get to more of that next week, one of the ways in which God brings help, and at the same time, judgment, depending upon the individual, is through the preaching ministry of the elders and pastors. The ministry of the preached word is part of the plan of God in building his kingdom, in growing the church. Small groups are great. It's it's good to have prayer groups. Those things are all good, good and fun. But there is a specific need for the preaching of the word. The Reformed community has called for a long time the primary means of grace in which God's will is accomplished in his people. Sardis only has the reputation for being alive. But if they are actually to be alive, that is something that is impacted by the ministry of the word. Let's go look at Romans. Open to Romans 10. If you know Romans 10, you probably know where I'm going with this. Because it's not my idea that I'm to preach, it's the Lord's ideas. (laughs) I don't know if that was a serious comment, but I had a serious answer ready for it. So, beginning at verse 13. 
Romans 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right, so think of Sardis. Saved means alive, right? 14. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful of the feet, excuse me, of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Again, because they're supposed to not preach their ideas and their words. They're supposed, they've been sent by Christ. They're supposed to preach Christ as well. And this is why Jesus is identifying himself back in Revelation 3.1 as he says, this is the words of him who has the seven stars, the elders or the pastors of the church, because they are, are an ordained means of bringing about the help that a church like Sardis needs, the preaching of the word. They, they are pastors and elders. They are said to be in his hand. He's compelling us to look to him for help. And there is, of course, that's, that, that's what makes the travesty and, and the tragedy of wolves in the pulpit so bad, of these false shepherds so bad, these hirelings so bad, is because this is the ordained means that God actually has for building his church. And you have these other people, and they're building eventually, essentially, what ends up to be their own kingdom. Not, not Christ's kingdom. And so, and that might actually be the case with the specific angel or messenger or pastor of Sardis, but we'll consider that next week. Now, if you remember, though, back to the Acts 6 passage, apostles and elders are also to be devoted to something else, uh, to the ministry of the word and to prayer, to prayer. Uh, prayer is always an integral part of the ministry of the word or because in prayer, there is a dependency upon the Spirit of God, upon the Holy Spirit. From start to finish, really, the whole process, it should be that. Um, if it's not, you know, that's something that the individual pastor or elder should be working on. Because the minister of God's Word should be praying as he prepares to teach, uh, right before he preaches. As he preaches, even within the quietness of his own soul and his own spirit, and then also after he preaches. Why? Because even if he clearly and precisely preaches the word, and he should, ultimately, salvation and sanctification, conviction, there are, which conviction would be under sanctification, those are all coming from the Lord. Those are all the work that the Spirit does. Even if the pastor eloquently and precisely and accurately preaches, which, again, he should labor to do so, it is up to the Spirit to cause change and life in the in the hearts of the hearers uh, even if the word is preached or taught or talked of with faithful precision if there is no work of the spirit then no salvation or sanctification will take place and that's what sardis and that's what any church who is dead or who is dying needs it needs the work of the spirit to quicken and to energize and convict and encourage and so this introduction to sardis Jesus reminds them of another aspect from chapter 1, and that he has the seven spirits of God. So Revelation 3.1 begins by saying again, To the angel of the church of Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, this is a little different, as you think you'll see. So look back at Revelation 1, this time verse 4. 
if you remember, this is the Trinitarian greeting from the throne room. So let's, let's look at verse 4. This is a little bit different than what we see in 3.1. It says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So you see there it's a mentioning of what would appear to be a father, son, and the spirit. It, it differentiates between the seven spirits and him who is and was and who was to come. And the one and from Jesus Christ, right? It, is, it differentiates the seven spirits from that as a person. And we talk about how that's the uh, the the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And we talked also again about how that number seven, again in apocalyptic literature, speaks about completeness, totalness, uh, fullness, or totality. And so it's talking about like the. It's a way of saying, you know, the, the fullness of the Spirit. Even it, it's talking about the, those only one Holy Spirit not seven Holy Spirits, but it's a way of speaking about the fullness of it, the, the gravity of the Spirit even. But notice the difference here in Revelation 3.1. It's not simply from the seven Spirits of God, but it's Jesus who has the seven Spirits. It's Jesus who has the Holy Spirit then. Now, there's been some which have found this wording to be troubling, and so they wanted to see this as, as something, these the seven and just spirit beings um, as seven angelic beings rather than the Holy Spirit, that Jesus isn't talking about the Holy Spirit here, but like seven angels. Well, Ian Paul in his commentary notes that won't work actually because it would be really odd to refer to angelic beings in a threefold greeting from the Father and the Son at the start of the letter, in which is 1-4. And then the Old Testament background to the term doesn't allow for it either. And further, like we've already been trying to, to show here, the Spirit, not not angelic beings, but the Holy Spirit is necessary to accomplish the kind of thing that Sardis needs, salvation and or sanctification. And if we think about it, it shouldn't be a problem for us to think of Jesus having the Spirit. It doesn't mean that Jesus has the Holy Spirit in the same way that believers have him and are indwelt by him, of course, but it's still right and important to note that Christ has him as our text here says. It's integral that this is the case for the church in Sardis and the church everywhere even. For one, a right understanding of theology proper should cause us to have no problem with this verse and the notion of Jesus having the Spirit. Theology proper is the area of theology concerned with the doctrines of God. You remember that, I hope, or you're aware of that. I know we've mentioned it before. Well, there's a subcategory of theology proper called the doctrine of inseparable operations, which should have us at ease with what is said here in Revelation 3.1 concerning the Spirit and, and Jesus. So, while it is true that there are three persons in the Godhead, there is still only one God, and there is a distinct unity then among the different persons, a, a complete unity among the different persons. I, I think I can explain it like this. So, the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us, John 1. He lived a perfect and sinless life under the law of God and was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In his resurrection and ascension and exaltation, he secured our resurrection and future full glorification and, and intercedes for us in the heavenly realm now. That is all true, and yet he doesn't do any of that work alone. Throughout the New Testament, he describes his unity with the Father as the sent Son. So the purpose of the Holy Spirit as the one sent from the Father and the Son and so on. We know from a cursory reading of Scripture, and we're going to go through some examples here in a moment, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit 
are always at work in an inseparable way. So much so that we would rightly confess that anything done by a specific person, anything done by God then, exists in a strict unity between the persons. There's only one will between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit because there is only one God. And so in theological terms, we call this the Trinitarian doctrine of inseparable operations. It is true that only the person of Jesus went, was incarnated and took, you know, lived a holy life and died as a substitute on the cross for the elect. But nevertheless, even though it was only the Son that did it, he didn't do it alone or opposed from the other two persons in the Godhead. Uh, the Trinitarian doctrine of inseparable operations is a helpful tool for us to understand the unity between the three persons as described in the biblical text. So this, this, so I quote here, this is from Brandon Smith. He says, this unity and distinction is most clearly shown in the triune God's activity in creation and salvation. So when one person in the Trinity acts, it's a unified act between all three. So for the Son to have the Spirit here, there's no confusing of the persons. The personal distinctions are still maintained, and this doesn't have to be something other than what the context demands. That the seven spirits here, just like in chapter 1, are referring to the Holy Spirit, because that is what is needed for a church like Sardis, the Spirit and the Word, preached through the, the apostles and pastors, or the pastors and the elders. The doctrine of inseparable operations, then, offers a category for us to talk about how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always act with one divine power, authority, and will. Even if the different persons are, are, are acting in such a way that can't be said for the other ones, they're not truly alone. It's within the same will, the same desired outcome. And that's what's being pursued here. Sardis needs help. Churches like Sardis need help. They need help from God. And specifically, the Son's engagement with the Spirit on behalf of the elect is why is what they need. So the Son has the Spirit. Theologically, it shouldn't be a problem for us. But also, according to the New Testament, it's not a problem for us either. We just, we just see this as revealed truth in the New Testament, that the Son has the Spirit, and the doctrine of inseparable operations is made clear. So maybe right away, because of the familiarity of this passage, we might be inclined to think of how the Spirit came and rested on him at his baptism, on Jesus' baptism. How the Father even spoke at that moment even, and how the Spirit from there empowered him in his humanity to do all the work that he was ordained to do. Remember, right after he was baptized even, we read that the Spirit led him out into the wilderness. There's this, again, this unity that we see going on between them. Uh, that's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I think it's familiar enough that we don't need to go there and see the account of his baptism. But even more, there are specific instances in which the Holy Spirit and Jesus, Jesus are shown to be working in unity. So let's turn to John 14. <clears throat> John 14, the fourth gospel, John 14. Here we see that Jesus is involved with the giving or the dispensing of the Spirit. And wouldn't that help with what we read in Revelation 3? So let's read beginning at verse 15. Here, this is Jesus talking. So he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he, being the Father, will give you another helper, 
to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. The helper is the Holy Spirit. It says, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my father's. I am in my father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom my Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So a couple things. I'm not going to exegete the, the whole passage, of course. But, one, you see the unity that I was speaking of earlier among the Godhead, don't you? Father, Son, Spirit, all acting in accord with one will. Jesus will ask of the Father, and the Father will send the Spirit. Now, to those who love Jesus, to those who keep the commandments, we read, or said differently, to those who bear fruit, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And why would they do that? Well, because they love Jesus, which, of course, would mean because Jesus first loved them, as First John instructs us. But note, Jesus isn't teaching legalism here. Not by any stretch. He's not teaching works righteousness. He's not teaching that we have to do the commandments of God in order for um, us to love Jesus. He's, he's, what he's teaching about here, the, the primary thing that he's teaching about in this passage, is about the Holy Spirit's role in our lives, one in which the Lord Jesus is also involved in. And he's helping them to understand what that looks like in light of his exaltation when he's ascended. Now, I know that there are some, and dispensationalists really are the ones who would do this. We talked about dispensationalism back in the Prolegomena, the, the first sermon from this series. They tend to want to take this passage and make the case that saints in the Old Testament, and even at the time of Jesus saying this here, didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. That they didn't have the Holy Spirit living in them. That it's a future thing for after Pentecost. But that's just wrong, to put it plainly. For one, if you love Jesus, the Holy Spirit must be living in you. Otherwise, you would love the darkness and not the light, who is Jesus Christ, right? And notice the passage that we read. It doesn't actually say that those who are there that love Jesus don't yet have the Spirit. That's an assumption that is arrived at from the faulty hermeneutic. Because what Jesus is speaking of here is the very thing that Sardis and churches in this age need. For those who love Jesus, we need the Spirit to help us. For this church that is on the verge of death, they need the Spirit's help. That's what Jesus calls him here in this text even, right? The Holy Spirit is the helper. He helps to sanctify us, to convict us, to encourage, to persevere us, to bring to remembrance the things that Jesus taught, which are the very things that the apostles end up teaching on, which are the very things that the prophets taught about as well. This is what Sardis needs. This is why Jesus identifies himself as the one who has the seven spirits in Revelation 3.1. It's the very thing they need. He's the one who sends, who tells the Father to send the Spirit. 
another reason why this is a great error to think that people who were saved from the fall in the garden on to the time of Jesus's ascension, that they didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them and empowering them, is because it is the Spirit specifically that is identified as the giver of life, which would be especially important to a church like Sardis that received the critique it did. So turn with me to Romans 8. And we'll just start at, at 1. Back to Romans. <clears throat> okay, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse 2. For or because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, notice our, our translators are helping us out here. Notice the S in the word spirit. Is it capitalized? I know in the ESV it is. NASB? Probably, I think it is. They're doing that. Now, now, translators, they could get this wrong, of course. They're not inspired. But I don't think they're getting it wrong here. They're wanting to help us here by capitalizing the Spirit here to show us that it's the Holy Spirit that, that is being referred to. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit who has set us free. It's the Holy Spirit who has made us alive. And they want us to see the connection with that to what's said down below. So look at verse 9. And this is especially good in our context of Revelation 3.1 and in light of its separable operations. So verse 9 in chapter 8. You, however, are not in the flesh. So the you here would be the Christians in Rome that received this letter and to any Christian as well. So it says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, capitalized. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Note again, both capitalized both times. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So, so that would tell you that anyone who has ever been saved by Christ, which is the only way to be saved, right? There's no other way to be saved other than by Christ, has the spirit of Christ. Or as it's also said here, has the spirit of God, which means the father in this context. And it's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And they're all capitalized, just like in 8.2. And so we should see John 14 talking about the helping activity of the Holy Spirit for the one who already has the Holy Spirit, which is the very thing that those in Sardis need, some of them at least. And the Spirit, the life-giving Spirit, which is also what others in Sardis need as well, those ones who aren't already possessing the Spirit. There are other texts that we can look at as well. I mean, Jesus promises the Spirit in Luke 24 to clothe the disciples with power. In John 20, Jesus symbolically breathes on the, the Holy Spirit onto the disciples. Again, not that they didn't have him already, but to show that Jesus' church needs the Spirit. And it's Jesus who loves the church and Jesus who sends the Spirit. It's part of his intercession for us. He gives us the Spirit as well. He's the one who baptizes with the Spirit according to the Synoptic Gospels. So 
Friends, the fact that this address to Sardis is from the, from the one who has the seven spirits and the seven stars is a great encouragement to us. It's a reminder right at the very onset of this address, before he even mentions the critique, which again is very serious, it's a reminder that Christ Jesus is our hope, our only hope, no matter what condition we are in. It's the word that is preached by those who are filled with the spirit that will move the church in God's will. It's a spirit that is in complete unity with him that provides and applies the grace that is needed for a situation like the one in Sardis, whether that is sanctification or whether that is even salvation. How tragic would it be for someone to hear this critique from the Lord, to have it preached to them, to have it read to them, and then to think that the right response is to try harder, to pull them up, to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and to work harder. That's the performance and reward-based system all over again, which again is most likely the reason why they're identified as being dead here. What they need is the same thing that we need. And that is the same thing that Christ church always needs. It's the gospel declared to us, which when it has been sovereignly applied to us by the work of the spirit, causes us not only to be made alive in Christ, but also perseveres us in Christ and sanctifies us in Christ, giving us grace so that we desire the right things. It's very much so the grace of the Lord that this address starts the way it does even. And praise the Lord for it. And now next week, we'll look at the specific critique and the exhortations that he has for them. But it has to be understood in light of the fact that Jesus is the one who has the spirit and the word in his hand. And it's from him that the church needs to be looking to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your complete care for us and for Jesus, you being the head of the church, your great love for us. We, we of course, pray, Lord, that we would never be considered to have a reputation of being alive, but yet are truly dead. Nevertheless, if it was your will for that to be the case, we know, Lord, that our hope wouldn't be in trying to just do the right thing all the harder, but our hope would be to look to you, you who have the spirit and the, and the means of bringing the correction that we need. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to see you clearly as you've revealed yourself in the word and that you would sanctify us all for your glory's sake. We need you, Lord God. We thank you for first loving us. And we pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, guys, any uh, questions or comments? All right, next time we'll get to the, maybe the rest of this church address. We'll finish next week, Lord willing. We'll see how that goes.